Good evening, everyone. So I'm, I'm going to start this sermon by making a guess about all of you tonight that I, I think is accurate. Um, I think that none of us today are tempted towards idolatry in the sense that Luke describes in Acts as in like the formal worship of physical idols. Am I, am I right about this? Okay. Um, now, which is not to say that we are not tempted towards idolatry, right? Um, certainly we are tempted towards idolatry more broadly defined. We can be drawn into worship of something other than God, like money, power, sex. We can elevate good things to ultimate things, our hobbies, our jobs, even family, or a certain set of spiritual practices. Uh, but thanks to more than 15 centuries of monotheism in the Western world, um, no one needs to stand in this pulpit tonight uh, to tell you to get rid of your graven images. Um, just in case someone does, get rid of your graven images. Um, <laughs> right? As far as I know, JP didn't light incense to Apollo to ask for inspiration in leading worship tonight, presumably. Um, at the opening, <laughs> the opening chapel at Wheaton College, no one is offering sacrifices to Athena, or at least they weren't in my day. Um, and I want to be really clear, this is not a bad thing, right? However, because we don't live in a culture where this type of idol worship is the norm, I think that we can oftentimes overlook one of Paul's main points in his speech in Athens, which is his description of who God is. And I will say at least for myself, because I'm not an idol worship Athenian, when I read this passage or when I hear it taught, I mainly either put myself or am asked to put myself in Paul's shoes and ask the question, what can I learn about apologetics and evangelism from Paul's speech? And I'm going to say that's an incredibly good question to ask. Um, Paul's speech is a masterpiece of saying a lot about God um, in a very small space, finding common ground with his audience, all of those things. But today, what I want us to do is to actually put ourselves in the shoes of Paul's audience and listen to what he's saying about the nature of God, to what he's telling us about who God is, so that we can hear his point that God is so much greater than idols, so much greater, in fact, that worshiping idols, whether the physical idols of Athens or the more intangible idols we can worship today, that worshiping idols should become unthinkable. Now, of course, the good news is um, we don't need to return to idol worship uh, to begin to understand why it was important to Paul that our God is not even comparable to an idol. Um, and we don't need to return to idol worship to understand why this truth still matters to us today when our idols tend to be so intangible um, as to sometimes become unnoticeable. So I invite you to join me this evening in exploring Paul's speech in Athens and his claims about the nature of God. Now, before I start unpacking some of Paul's points about the nature of God, let's take just a moment to understand the context of this speech that Paul gives. Um, and if it wasn't clear already, we're, uh, I'm preaching from the passage in, in Acts that's in your order of worship, so if you want to have that in front of you. Um, Paul's time in Athens actually be begins a couple of verses before the passage that you have printed for you. Um, and Luke, who is the author of Acts, tells us that Paul had been in Athens for a while. And Luke also adds that Paul was greatly distressed by the number of idols that existed in the city. 
And we know from this and from other ancient sources that Athens actually was a city that was well known for its abundance of, of, of idols, for the worship of, of gods that happened in that city. And it's in this context, in the city full of idols, that Paul begins to teach about Jesus, um, as is often his practice starting in the Jewish synagogue, but he's also preaching in the marketplace in Athens to, um, to the Gentile Athenians. And in his account in Acts, Luke goes on to tell us that Paul's teaching in the marketplace draws the attention of several philosophers. And these would have been most likely Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, um, which are two of the main philosophical systems in the ancient Greco-Roman world. I promise that this is not going to turn into a philosophy lecture. Um, but, <laughs> um, but yes, these would have been the, the philosophers uh, most likely that would have been uh, listening to Paul. Um, and some of these philosophers, after engaging with Paul, um, seemed to think that Paul is attempting to introduce new gods into the Athenian pantheon. So they take Paul and they bring him before the Areopagus, which is the, the ruling council in the city, which is where our passage today picks up. Now, I want to be clear, the charge of introducing new gods into Athens is actually a really serious charge for Paul. Um, if you remember your history of philosophy, uh, this is one of the charges that Socrates was brought up on um, in Athens for introducing new gods, impiety, corrupting the youth, um, and, and executed for. It's a serious charge because you can't just show up in a city in the Greco-Roman world um, and introduce a new deity and especially not in a city like Athens, which has a really strong sense of tradition, propriety, and piety, um, uh, reverence for the gods. In order to introduce a new god, a new cult of worship for the new god, you would have to make a case before the city council, which they would then approve or deny. And not only are they looking at the, this new god that you're attempting to worship, but they're also acting on the assumption that in order to introduce a new god, you're going to need land for a temple, you're going to need accommodations for priests, you're going to need logistical support if you're going to take place in the various religious rituals that happened in the city of Athens. So there, there's both a theological piece and a, and a pretty significant logistical and civic piece um, that goes to introducing a new religion. And the council would have to take all of these things into consideration before they would grant or deny a request to introduce a new god into the Athenian pantheon. And so in this context, it makes a lot of sense why these philosophers hear what Paul is teaching, and they're like, wait, 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 wait a minute. You can't just introduce a new god. You need to come to the council um, and present your case for this new god who you're introducing, or these new gods. So, when Paul comes and speaks to the council, um, and it's a speech that Luke is summarizing for us, uh, it was probably a longer speech, but it's, we have the summary of it here in uh, Acts, uh, Acts 17. Um, Paul isn't just introducing a new idea for the fun of it, right? You know, for some people to have some philosophical conversation over a couple of beers, right? This is not what's happening. Um, He's instead addressing a fairly serious charge of introducing a new god into Athens without having gone through the proper channels. And it's in this context that we have to understand Paul's speech, because he starts by making the case that he's certainly not introducing a new god. Um, if you remember the very beginning of this passage, he says, you even have an altar to an unknown god, and he's connecting that to the god that he's introducing. Um, but not only is he making the case that he's not introducing a new god, He's also making the case that this God whom he's preaching reveals the hollowness of all the idol worship that's happening in Athens. 
and demands that all people repent of their misdirected worship and turn towards the true God. And so it's with this context in mind, the context that Paul is sharing a vision of a God who is far greater than any idol or any philosophical system could possibly be. Let's pull out four of Paul's characterizations of God and explore how this God invites us to worship him alone. And the four characterizations we'll look at, and I'll I'll say these multiple times, um, but I've pulled out the ideas that God, uh, of God as our creator, and ourselves as God's offspring. God is always already present in the world around us. God is a being who is not dependent on our work, and God as a just judge. So I'm going to start by reading um, verses 24 through 30, uh, if you want to follow along in your order of worship, um, which is where Paul is, is packing the bulk of what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So we notice that Paul opens his description of God by proclaiming God as the creator of the world. Now, again, if we're looking at this through an apologetics lens, um, this is certainly not a controversial idea to his audience. Um, Pretty much everyone who is listening to Paul would certainly agree um, that there is a divine being who created the world. Even the Epicurean philosophers who were the most skeptical that the gods were even remotely interested in human beings would have agreed that there is a divine being who created the world. But what I want us to notice is how God, or how Paul rather, describes this creator God. So let's notice that God and just one God created everything and is still now the source of life for all things. So this is God as creating and sustaining all of creation. More than this, God specifically created one man from whom God then gave life to all people. And and this is an idea that Luke seems to like. If you remember in Luke's genealogy of Jesus in in Luke's gospel, uh, in chapter 3, he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So he's he's seeing God as the father of Jesus, but we kind of see that idea take even, even broader sense here, God as the father of all human beings. So not only is God creating and sustaining everything, but he's creating and sustaining every one, and not just interested in one particular group of people, right? But it's, it's all of humanity. And this, of course, is important in Paul's message that this God is, um, 
should be worshiped by both the Jews and the Gentiles, not by one, one people group alone. And there's even more, because in this passage, Paul not only says that God created human beings as his offspring, but that God desires to be known by his children. And so by describing God as creator in this way, Paul is emphasizing that God is both all-powerful and intimately interested in each one of us. And what else is, is there that we can worship, either in ancient Athens or today or any other time, that is both so transcendent and so imminent, so sustaining of all life, and so concerned about each one of us? And if this God does exist, I think Paul is asking us, how could it be worth worshiping anything else? Moving on to the idea of God being always already present. This, of course, is, is tied to Paul's idea of God as creator. Because as he describes God as creator and ourselves as God's offspring, Paul uses this incredibly beautiful phrase in verse 28. In God, we live and move and have our being. Um, and I, I was tempted at one point in the sermon writing process to just give you that and tell you to sit with it for about 20 minutes. Um, because I think there could be far, use, <laughs> far, far worse uses of our time. Um, but what I want to emphasize here is Paul's reminder that there is nowhere we can go and nothing we can do in this life that takes us outside of God's presence. Wherever we are, God is always already present with us. And of course, in this, Paul is echoing many, many other passages, but it's Psalm 139 that always comes to mind, where the psalmist asks, like, where can I go away from God's presence? And the answer is nowhere. There, there is nowhere that you can go away from God's presence. And this would have mattered, of course, to the ancient Athenians in their idol-worshipping worship, context, um, because in the ancient world, you, you worship different gods for different things, right? You worship one god if you're going to give birth, and you maybe are making offerings to another god if you're taking a sea journey, or you'll have a god in one city and another god in another city. But instead, this is a god who is always already with us in every circumstance of our lives. You don't have to get God's attention, right? God is always, always, already anywhere that we may go. And in a world where gods were oftentimes seen as indifferent to humans, Paul's God stands out as one in whom we live and move and have our being. And I think that even today in a world where our idols are less tangible, is there anything that we can worship that compares to this all-encompassing, loving, and sustaining presence in the world? I think Paul is asking us to consider that question. The next way that Paul characterizes God that I, I want to pull out in this passage um, is God as a being who does not need our work. Our relationship with God is not transactional. So if you look at verses 24 and 25, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. In rejecting the idea that God needs anything from us, Paul sets our God apart from most other beings or things that we might worship because most idol worship is transactional. 
recently, I've been enjoying a fantasy series um, in which the entire world economy um, is, is based on the exchange of power and worship between gods and the people who worship them. And it's, it's really fascinating. Um, I'm happy to be nerdy about the series if anyone wants to ask me about it later. Um, but it, it really is a, a stark reminder that this is the way we tend to assume that the worship of powerful beings goes, right? We give them something, right? And they give us something in return. And I think that still works today, right? In, in ancient Athens, you might have offered a material sacrifice, right? Wine, sacrifice to an animal, um, and to expect something in return. But in the modern world, we might sacrifice our time, our energy, our money, um, in order to expect something in return. And I think additionally, even more insidiously, um, in the Christian world, we can really easily fall into the belief that God needs us to do things for God, um, whether it's worship or evangelism or serving in a particular way. Um, I certainly know that this has been um, kind of baked into a lot of my experience of modern American Christianity, right? Like God needs you to do great things for God. I don't know if anyone has ever heard that message. But that's not, that's not true, right? God doesn't need anything that we can give him as if he can't give it himself. Now, I do want to make a quick side note here, um, because faith in God certainly should come with action, right? We see this over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, even in Micah 6, which was our theme passage uh, for Lent this year, um, and actually there, there's a t-shirt in the back that is very visible here, um, God says to ancient Israel that he doesn't want their sacrifices, right? He doesn't want their sacrifices of animals. What instead he wants for them is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. So there certainly is a sense in which placing our faith in God, worshiping God, does um, mean that there's certain actions that we ought to be taking. But I think we need to be really, really clear that these are not transactional in nature, right? We are not doing this because then God owes us something. Um, and they're also not things that we are doing because God can't do them, right? We aren't doing justice because somehow if we don't do it, God can't achieve justice. And so against a transactional God or a God who's dependent on what we can provide, Paul shows us a God who instead is the one who provides all that we need. Again, our life, our movement, our very being, without needing or demanding anything from us. And how much better is this God than a God who expects payment and needs our service? And then the final characterization of God that I would like to look at comes at the end of this passage, which is God as the just judge. And Paul describes this in verses 30 through 31, um, where he's concluding his portrait of God. And he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, which is idol worship, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul is telling us that God is going to judge the world with justice through Jesus, the man who he has raised from the dead. Now, I think it's here that Paul is not just taking aim at the pantheon of gods in Athens, um, some of whom may have been more or less concerned with justice. But I think that Paul is in particular here contrasting this God that he's preaching to the God or the gods as either the Stoics or the Epicurean philosophers would have conceived of them. 
And, and this is where I am going to take a very brief detour into philosophy. So the Epicureans believed that gods were indifferent to humans and that death is just the final end. Um, and, and this is why the Epicureans have the philosophy um, of seeking uh, pleasure and avoiding pain. And, and this isn't just hedonism, right, where you just kind of do whatever you want, right? It's, it's seeking what brings you pleasure and avoiding whatever might bring you pain. Um, but in this worldview, there, there's no real role for justice, right? Justice brought about by some sort of a final judgment is completely meaningless because there, there's nothing after death and the gods are not concerned with human life. The Stoics, in contrast, they did believe in a more benevolent deity, um, and Stoics certainly advocated ethical living, um, which could involve uh, some form of doing justice. But they also taught that in the end, the world would be wholly destroyed, um, and they don't believe in any sort of resurrection. So the idea of a god who not only brings justice, but also raises people from the dead to enjoy that justice this ends up being a step too far for many Athenians in the council. Um, in the, the bit of the passage after what is printed in your, in your order of worship, we kind of see the council in Athens erupting after Paul says this about resurrection and people, most people are like, no, 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 like that, that does not make any sense. Um, but I think it, it's because this God that Paul is describing um, in so many ways, but especially with this idea of resurrection and just judgment, um, this God, upends the way people think that the world works. This God cares enough to judge justly and has the ability to do so because, again, this God is the entire source of our life and our existence. And so we can no longer even justify our idol worship by saying that it's a means by which we can bring justice into the world. Only the true God can do that. And this God can do it far better than any other being in the world. Now, at the start of the sermon, I, I joked a little bit about idol worship um, because I, I do think that our cultural context can make it a little bit more difficult to understand Paul's discussion of God in this passage, or at least to understand ourselves as also the audience for Paul's discussion of the nature of God. However, as we've examined Paul's characterization of God as a God who renders idol worship nonsensical, I want to ask you, does Paul's description of God in this passage challenge you to re-examine the places where you may be worshiping an idol instead of God. Because although our contexts are different, just like the ancient Athenians, we're surrounded by things other than God that clamor for our worship and our allegiance. How does Paul's conception of God in this passage help us as we seek to center our worship and our faith on God alone? So maybe what caught your attention tonight is the truth that you are a child of God, God who is both transcendently powerful and intimately concerned with your well-being. If you're in this category, you might spend some time this week meditating on what it means to be a daughter or a son of God and listening to what God might be telling you about how this truth can orient your life and your worship. Or perhaps what you need tonight is to rest in the knowledge that God is always already present with us, that our very existence is held safe within God. I know that um, for me, uh, in this environment of a 24-hour news cycle and social media, it can be really easy to have my heart captured by fear and by anger. And then when that happens, it's 
very tempting to start worshiping a thing, right? A, a politician, an ideology that promises us the power to relieve our fear. So if this is something that uh, you find yourself struggling with, I just encourage you to root yourself in practices that remind you of the presence of God. And this, there's so many different things that can remind us of that. Maybe it's a walk in nature or a time of prayer or reading a Bible passage. Um, it can also be just removing yourself from some of those sources that cause fear and anxiety. I will say I myself personally, as much as I enjoy Twitter, I can't be on it because it makes me um, angry, like really angry all the time. So, you know, that's not super fabulous for my family. Um, so, <laughs> right? So like, I, I just can't really be on Twitter. Um, and and that, might be, um, that might be a place where you need to think about where you're being uh, pushed to ignore the presence of God in the world around you. If you needed to hear tonight that God does not need your gifts, I just invite you to ask the Spirit to reveal to you where you can begin to release that weight. It might be in letting go of the often burdensome idea that you need to accomplish something great for God. It might also mean an ego check, uh, reevaluating whether you're serving because you enjoy the idea that God needs something from you or because you think that your service obligates God to give to you in return. And finally, you might need the reminder that Jesus is the just judge. And this might be a comfort to you in a world where we so often see evil triumphing, when we see evil piling even more suffering on those who already bear heavy burdens. Or it might be a challenge to re-examine our own relationship with power. And power is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can become an idol um, when we convince ourselves that we are doing good or doing justice and what we're really doing is serving the idol of power. But I, I also want to say, even if a reflection leads to conviction, some form of conviction, I hope that you can find even greater comfort in the fact that God is infinitely greater than anything else we could possibly worship. God is the creator in whom, as Paul says, and I'm going to quote this again, we live and move and have our being. God is not finite. God is not transactional in his relationship with us. God is the whole source of our lives. And God desires to be known by us, is not far from any of us, considers us his children. Like the ancient Athenians, we're tempted to root ourselves in what's finite and in what offers us power or pleasure in return for our devotion. But Paul showed them and still shows us a better way and a better God. And may we continue to turn our hearts to this God.